Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast, the Premier announces a vaccine passport, but do we really need something from the feds? Security on the campaign trail, it turns out that those protesting Trudeau are also protesting the Conservatives. How will this election campaign change after Labor Day? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. I'm a little sore today after my first football practice. Oh, no. Good thing it's radio and you can't smell the A535 rub. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson! Uh, my eyes are burning there from the smell of the A535. Uh, yeah, leave that door open. I gotta get some circulation in here. Ooh, way! Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. Yeah, I, I can't reach the door. I have to go. Do you want to wait till I get the door? Hang on a sec. Hang on. Just stay right there. Don't move. Hang on. Hang on. Stay there. Don't move. Don't move. There we go. Now I'm tangled up again. Oh, it just opened again. I know. I'm sorry. Thank you. All right. Kurt's just bringing me in a nice glass of water. <laughs> Do you want to start the show again? Come on back in. We'll read the intro again. Nah, never mind. Uh, it is the Scott Thompson Home Show. Feel free to jump into the fun. You can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. Is it on request Friday yet? I could use one right about now. All right, let's bring in, uh, bring in Dr. Colin Furness, epidemiologist, associate professor with the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, University of Toronto's Dalatlana School of Public Health. And with us now, doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. All right, your thoughts on, uh, it looks like Ontario is going to move forward with a vaccine uh, passport of type. We're going to hear more about that coming up, obviously, at uh, 1 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, the Canadian Medical Association, we had them on yesterday, Dr. Kathleen Smart, I believe it was, saying that this is not the way to go, that it should be a federal system instead of a patchwork. What are your thoughts on all of this, Colin? I think there is a good argument to make for a federal system because the, the, local, the more local you go, the more complications you have when you try and port that elsewhere. So someone from Alberta or Manitoba or Prince Edward Island, you know, if they show up here and we have a program where you need to show a credential, it makes it really hard. So I think a national system would make sense. At the same time, I'd love for us to get away from the word passport because I think it's a loaded term. It's, it's a yeah. term you would associate with borders and federal control. It, to me, it connotes surveillance and control and and i i think that's that, that's an assumption the comments you made just a few moments ago i think we're bang on that this technology actually says nothing about the rules under which you'd use it so if we can use a neutral term like certificate then i think we might be able to say okay that's the technology and now what are we going to do with this certificate but I, I i see i see value in a national system obviously we've chosen not to do it why are we have why are we not having that discussion uh, that you just mentioned in regard to the term passport because it seems as if uh, you know, on one side, you can certainly see the convenience of it all and, and the security issues. It makes total sense. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, as you mentioned, there's also the chatter about conditions and what that means. It seems that we're trying to disguise the document itself and not have that secondary discussion, which is really at the center of all of this. Why aren't we having that discussion? Well, I think there could be a few reasons. Um, one that comes to mind is territory, turf, and levels of government. You know, health is run provincially. We have some right-wing provincial governments across the country that I think instinctively do not want to have another control device. Just ideologically, they don't. Never mind COVID. It's just it's not naturally palatable to them. We've got a federal government that actually probably would endorse that, uh, but I think they have probably felt that it's intruding on provincial turf, and that's, that's a real no-no. So I think we might have have, we might have those sorts of problems, and then businesses actually are mostly regulated at the municipal level, where there's even less control. So I think these different discourses get fractured at different levels of government, and the result is the puddle that we're in, where we're not having a clear conversation and we don't have a clear vision. Will we still be having these discussions after this certificate or whatever you want to call it, passport, is issued? Because, again, I think a lot of people are assuming this will solve the problems. Well, I hope the conversation can start in earnest, yes. 
there was a couple provinces that are a little bit ahead of Ontario. We could look and see what BC is learning and what Quebec is learning. We seem to be really good at not paying attention to our neighbors and not learning from their successes and failures in Canada, which is a head scratcher. The one advantage we have of a decentralized health system by province is that we've got ten different laboratories trying to figure out how to solve the same problem, and and so I think we could learn a lot by by seeing what's going on elsewhere. But once the certificate is in place, I think yeah, the conversation becomes really urgent about what the rules are going to be and what the latitude is going to be and what we're trying to accomplish. It's not a silver bullet, but I think it would be an enormously important thing for some contexts in order to balance that, let's get back to normal life and let's not spark more uh, transmission than we need to. Uh, from what we're hearing, and again, we're only speculating at this time, so we hear the news conference coming up up at 1 o'clock. Uh, I heard reports that it is similar to British Columbia's in the sense that British Columbia's uh, certificate, let's call it that, uh, is temporary, and it will be in place until a federal passport is put in place. Again, that should be a conversation we're having, because I think that would ease a lot of tension. I think so. I, I think so. I think that's 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 a reasonable thing to do is to say we have a short term urgent problem and a longer term infrastructure problem and let's let's disentangle those. So um, I, I, I see no problem I see no problem coming up with what is explicitly going to be a temporary solution. It might make it ideologically more palatable for some governments as well. What would you like to see from the province this afternoon? In the form of a certificate? I guess I'd like to know that we're being equitable. And that's a, that's a challenge that our provincial government has not been particularly good at across COVID. So by equity, I mean not everyone has a smartphone. Not everyone has that, you know, has the, the money for that, has the wherewithal for that. So how are we going to accommodate that? Whether we decide we're going with cards, whether we decide we're going with iPhone apps or whatever it is, we need equity. We need to actually look at all the situations in which people who are not residents of Ontario don't have a smartphone. Uh, there might be extra complications in terms of identifying people who, who identify as First Nations, travelers, visitors from elsewhere. There's a whole long list of complications, and we need to know that we're being equitable that we're not shutting a group out. To me, that's actually the most important thing. Because if this isn't fair and equitable, it's going to create problems rather than solve them. It's interesting you say that because confusion and equality were two words that the Canadian Medical Association used that, that said that was the problem with a provincial uh, patchwork system was that it created confusion and, and, and was not uh, uh, equi- equitable. Um, do you think once this happens, once we have uh, these certificates in place, that we will be back to where we started? Well, it depends on the starting point you're referring to. If you mean before COVID, no, I mean um, before we had before we had passports. Because again, I, I, I'm not convinced yet. I, I think we need a, a standard system. I think we need uh, uh, something that is secure. And again, I'm fully vaccinated. I encourage everybody to get fully vaccinated. Um, but but I'm not sure that this is going to solve our problems. Well, I think. People who are fully vaccinated, some are scratching their heads saying, what's this going to change for me? You know, I'm fully vaccinated. I'm going to go to a restaurant and do what I do. This, this doesn't actually do anything. People who don't want to be vaccinated look at it as a, as a serious tool of oppression, saying you're going to exclude me from society or force me to do something I don't want to do. So those are the two kind of, the kind of negative sides of it. I think um, the, the way to step back and say, look, a big challenge we have with COVID is large gatherings, be that a crowd of people at an airport or a class of kids in school. And large gatherings are really risky. They're risky for people who are unvaccinated, but they're also risky for people who are vaccinated. And what you want to do is be able to say, look, for large gatherings, let's have these. Let's have concerts. Let's have our economy back. Let's have arts and culture. Let's have art galleries. Let's do all of that. But for those large gatherings, we need a way to be able to say we have minimized risk. And that's what it accomplishes. So I think we will be further ahead, at least on that basis. Uh, let's give a bit of an update now, Doctor, where we are. Uh, I think we're looking at 500, uh, sorry, 656 new cases now. I know uh, it's more about hospitalization and ICU numbers. Uh, how comfortable are you where we are now in this fourth wave? It's getting increasingly difficult to predict where we're going to go because the epidemiology of a disease is going to change when you in- introduce um, new variables like vaccination 
partial vaccination and partial restrictions. It makes it really difficult to predict where that virus is going to go. And this is, I think, a main reason why the Ontario Science Table has been reluctant to release modeling. Modeling is much less reliable, much less stable when you can't have confidence in the assumptions you make. So when you tell me we've got 600 cases today, part of me says, wow, you know, that could be 1,200 cases in another 20 days because that seems to be what the doubling time is. But I'm actually not sure that's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's very unclear to me that we're going to have that kind of exponential growth. I think we're going to see periods of sharp outbreaks here and there. I think there is going to be a rise, and I think you're bang on when you say what really matters is hospitalizations. But there's still a function of the number of cases. So if the number of cases gets high enough, the hospitalizations will follow. So the hospitalizations are the red flag, but the, the overall number of cases matters as well. And I'm watching it carefully just to try and learn how is Delta behaving in an environment where there's high vaccination rates and certain restrictions, but also things like gyms and indoor dining and, and kids in school shortly uh, without vaccination. Like Those, are, those are, are, are tinder for significant outbreaks, and it's less predictable. Sorry, I can't be more precise. And and I guess that's the difference between the first, second, and third, and fourth wave is that the fourth wave is in a vaccinated world, and we still don't know what that's going to look like. And we have seen areas uh, where vaccination rates are high. I think about about Canada's north. I think about Israel, and gigantic outbreaks, right? And and so it it, it it's it's apples and oranges every time we look somewhere else to say, well, their vaccination rate was high, but it was a different vaccine, or their vaccination rate was the same, but they uh, they had fewer restrictions. We're trying to figure out. What keeps COVID at bay is enormously elusive. What combination of vaccination rates and restrictions do we need in order to keep the, get the genie back in the bottle? There is a reality. There is a solution there. We just don't know what it is. And I think that's obviously going to be frustrating not only for policymakers, but just for members of the public who really want this to be over. Uh, we're certainly hearing of another variant uh, from South Africa and such. Um, again, can we see this sort of chatter continuing through the next year? Uh, many are concerned about travel restrictions. Uh, we're still seeing the border in the United States being uh, closed to those uh, United States citizens that are vaccinated coming into Canada. Where do you see the six months from now? And I know I'm asking you to say something that you cannot possibly predict. But uh, again, it is a different world with vaccination. It is. Look, what we've done a really bad job at is managing our borders, that it's been ham-fisted, badly controlled, badly run, I mean, really a mess. That's what let Alpha in. That's what let Delta in. Yeah. The wave that we're in now, what we're dealing with now, is the fact that we would not, could not organize ourselves um, to, to take control of that. We could have done a better job. There's no question we could have. And so my answer to where we're going to be in six months depends on our political will to do a better job. And part of that is to be uh, less willing to be led by airlines and more willing to tell airlines what is safe, because the, the conversation's been going in the, the wrong direction there. And I think airlines actually bear a lot of responsibility for a lot of behaviors that have put us in a bad place. Mm. So we can improve that a lot. And we're going to need to, because you're right, the variants in South Africa, well, it's, it seems to be more vaccine-evading, but it's not clear it will outcompete Delta. Delta is not particularly vaccine-evading, right. but it's very efficient, and it's squeezing out other variants. So ironically, Delta may be our friend in terms of holding off other variants that might be more vaccine-resistant but aren't reproducing at the, aren't able to compete effectively with Delta. We don't know. But what mm. we do know is the whole world is going to be a Petri dish for variants until we get global vaccination rates way up. That's going to take a long time, like years. And so for that, uh, for, for that period of time, if we want to be normal and have a normal life, what we need to do, what we're going to need to focus on very heavily is how we test people who are arriving and, and whether we insist on vaccination among people who are arriving and what vaccines and how many boosters. So there's a lot of questions around that. But for me, in my mind, six months from now, we could be in really good shape. But we have to answer those questions for the borders and implement a system that actually works properly. Dr. Colin Furness with us, epidemiologist, associate professor with the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time and, your, and taking the time to uh, provide a little insight for us all. We greatly appreciate it. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML.
All right, uh, let's move on. Uh, another, I, I, I think, uh, red herring in all of this. Another, hey, look over here, something shiny. Look at look at something over here as opposed to what's actually going on in the world, uh, and that being a global pandemic and an election. Uh, is we're hearing all kinds of talk about the protesters, and uh, at first it, it really, uh, I, I think, shook up the prime minister. Now he's using it to his advantage. Look at those people, blah blah blah, blah and he's painting them as the opposition. Uh, and specifically the right, which is uh, a little uh, hilarious, thinking considering that these are professional protesters that are well organized, and as the Toronto Star has pointed out, are the same ones that stalked uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce's house, and you know have been going after Ford. So uh, again, if people don't like you, they're going to protest. If you create divisiveness, they're going to protest. But again, the, it appears uh, the prime minister's campaign is trying to use this like, look, if you don't vote for me, that's what you get. Those wackos over there, those extremes over there, which come from all sides of the political spectrum. How do these people get organized? Where are they from? Let's bring in Phil, Ger- uh, Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and a former analyst for CSIS. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. I want to play hockey, but I have to always have time for you. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, I'll try to make it quick then. So, uh, you know, more uh, most of the time when we chat, we talk about uh, terrorist threats and all this sort of thing. But here we are talking about uh, a group of, cr- of protesters along a campaign trail. What can you tell us about these protesters that seem to be well organized and and go after whatever political party? Yeah, I, I think your introduction was spot on, Scott. I think these people are from right across the political spectrum. Yeah, some may be right wing, some may be like more left wing. You know, it's, it's fascinating we're having this conversation, Scott, because just a few days ago um, in my program at U of University of Ottawa, we brought up a former New York Police Department deputy chief who talked about the speed with which protests are organized these days thanks to social media. And, you know, information gets out there, it gets shared, it gets you right across, people see this stuff and they show up. That's the challenge for law enforcement. That's the challenge for security forces, figuring out just how do you stop this thing when you can't stop social media, you can't stop Twitter, you can't stop Facebook, you can't stop all these other platforms. And the bottom line is they have a right to protest. Um, I don't like the profanity personally, but the concern is what if one or two or a small handful turn to violence at the end? That's where the, the concern, I think, for security comes in. Is there a central cause here? Is there? Are they supporting any one party or what have you? I guess we've already d- discluded that, but uh, it seems that they're just kind of bent on creating anarchy. It's a dog's breakfast. There certainly is an anti-Trudeau element. I'm saying, you know, I think we've spoken before recently, Scott. I've been through rural Ontario in the past couple of weeks, seeing the you know F blank 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 Trudeau signs that that people put up. Uh, there certainly is, I think, a, a sense of fatigue with the, with the Trudeau government. But, you know, COVID's not helping. The world economy's not helping. There are a bunch of things. You know, some are, 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 are anti-vaxxers. Some are, are climate change denialists. Some are just people that want to raise a stink. And they're using this platform to do it. But, I, I, you know, it's, to the best of my knowledge, and I, I don't have access to intelligence anymore since I retired, but I don't think it's centrally organized. I think it's just people that are being organized by social media. Uh, the PM is pointing to the opposition. Is this is this helping? Is this is this creating more divisiveness, or is this is this cooling the environment? Well, surprise, surprise. Of course, we know we've seen the polling numbers, right? The Liberals are are falling, and the Conservatives are rising. So this is clearly a political tactic to try to point the figure. This is you know Aaron O'Toole's people, and as you said in your introduction, look what you're going to get if you vote for these kind of you know Conservative Party. I, I think it's divisive. I know all party leaders have called out these people saying, you know, this is not Canadian. This is not what we want during an election campaign. You know, register your protest. Don't be an idiot and don't use profanity and things like that. I don't like the divisiveness that, that the prime minister is, is engaged in this. I think it's a political ploy to try and maybe scare people into voting. Uh, maybe maybe would sit on the sidelines this time and not vote. To maybe vote for liberals so that, you know, they, they don't get the yahoos in power kind of thing. But no, I would I would have expected a more leadership uh, a more mature attitude from the prime minister. And unfortunately, Scott, you know, as well as I do, politics is politics, right? Uh, how do how do the leaders protect their campaign on the road? How how big a, an issue has security become now on a campaign trail? I'm sure it's become a lot bigger. So, but, you know, by definition, the prime minister, 
you know, cabinet ministers, Supreme Court judges all get RCMP protective details. That's the nature of the RCMP VIP service. I'm not exactly uh, 100% certain of what the opposition leaders will get. I'm too pretty sure they probably get some level of protection. I'm guessing your average MP gets next to nothing. Maybe maybe now local law enforcement is being drawn in to, to help with these types of things. I'm not certain, but I think that conversation is being held right now, given the vociferousness of some of these protesters, that maybe there's a conversation that maybe we need to up the security. And then the, the, the message, unfortunately, Scott, is like, do you want to go to a, a rally where there's a bunch of police hanging around? I mean, it was a phalanx of police officers between you and the candidate. It really p- puts a pall on the atmosphere. And I don't think as Canadians we want to get there. But end of the day, if one of these guys decides to go violent, we have to you know, ensure they're as protected as much as possible. Because the last thing anybody wants to see uh, is, you know, maybe an assault or, or God forbid, someone gets seriously hurt or even, or even killed by these idiots that are protesting the campaign. Uh, we have seen this become politicized, as I mentioned at the beginning. You don't want these people running the government. On the other hand, what do all four parties have to do to unite to stop this sort of thing, to, to get a handle on this sort of thing? Is there a message that can come out of all four? Can they unite on this in some way? Well, I think they have. I certainly have seen statements by uh, Mr. Singh and Mr. O'Toole who said, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not Canadian. This is not part of our electoral process. The problem is, Scott, as we said at the outset, if they're not tied to any political party, and if you want to just you know, raise a stink or be a complete idiot in public and, and yell nasty things, and you're not going to vote anyway, or you're not you know, partisan to a particular party, what do you care what Mr. Trudeau, Mr. O'Toole, or Mr. Singh says? You're going to ignore the message because they don't speak to you anyway. I think the leaders are doing what they need to do, and that is say categorically this is unacceptable. We, we, we don't support this. We don't want it. But at the end of the day, if people are just, you know, sorry to use the term, morons, and they want to, you know, do this in public, there's not a lot that can be done to stop them. And as you said, uh, the upper echelons get protection, but the candidates on the street don't necessarily, uh, well, don't get that kind of uh, protection. And, and we're hearing reports they're getting it at the door. They're getting it on the trail. My fear, Scott, is that, you know, if this kind of pattern continues, and I'm hoping it's a blip on the radar, although, you know, look at south of the border, right, what happens there on a regular basis. My fear is that good Canadians will not want to put their names forward for office for fear of for personal safety or or safety of their families. And so let's nip this thing in the bud now. Let's get rid of it and just say this is so un-Canadian. We're just going to, you know, get rid of you guys. But, you know, saying we want to stop this and doing it are two completely different, two, two different issues completely. Uh, Phil, can't ask, uh, can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on all of the chatter in regard to a vaccine passport. Uh, again, speaking of politics, my goodness, uh, we, we have 10 different provinces doing 10 different things, coming at it from 10 different angles. Um, BC is uh, being lauded, as well as Quebec, as doing this uh, appropriately. BC has said theirs is only temporary until a federal uh, passport comes into play for travel. We had no chatter about that whatsoever. Instead, the emphasis just seems to be on the provinces to come up with some sort of patchwork system. Oddly enough, the provinces are coming up with their own patchwork system because there's a patchwork system within the regions, yet they can't see the big picture in all of this. Uh, The prime minister giving the provinces money to actually come up with their own system. Why are we not talking about a federal system here with the, the, with one uh, one source of vaccination right across the country? Is that possible? Well, it's kind of out of my out of my realm of knowledge, Scott. But I'll simply say, you know, we have a wonderful country here in Canada that sometimes doesn't work properly. We have the provinces versus, the, of course, the feds. Health is a provincial issue, and it has been since I guess Confederation. I would think that under this particular time where you have a, a, a worldwide pandemic, and we've seen the, you know, the effect here in Canada, how many thousands of deaths and people affected, I would like to see the federal government step in and, and basically mandate. I think that a passport's a really good idea. Yeah, it's going to raise protests from the anti-vaxxers, but they're going to protest anyway. So why yeah. not put in, in, into place something that's going to work, that's going to help protect Canadians to limit the spread of, of COVID-19 and get us to a place where life becomes normal again? It, it is an, an imposition on our freedoms. It's absolutely, that's true that the state has the right to impose on your freedoms in extraordinary circumstances. And I think you and I, my friend, agree these are extraordinary circumstances.
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are you concerned at all about, because there's some people that are concerned about security, counterfeiting, this sort of thing. That's one of the reasons why Ontario is talking about going to another system. Uh, you know, we have uh, what we have on our phones now. I've used that to get into my doctor's office and into my mother's long-term care uh, facility. Uh, people are saying, well, those can all be forged, what have you. Are you convinced that uh, that we can do this securely as well as conveniently? I think we can't. Look, there's always going to be people that circumvent the system. There's always going to be people that fake things. But look, look at how, I mean, it is easy to counterfeit money, right? From what I've been told. And yet our money system works. I mean, the, the counterfeit money exists and it gets, it's found from sometimes and it does have a slight economic effect. But this to me is the same thing. So, so, so you counterfeit your vaccine passport. How many people seriously are really going to do that? What's the quality of the counterfeit going to be? Will it pass muster? And the bottom line is, is that this thing will have a lot more advantages than disadvantages. So do we just accept the fact that there will be a certain percentage of people that fake it, but the vast majority are going to follow through as they should? And as a result, we're going to be in a better position down the, down the road. How organized, you were talking a little earlier on about uh, the organization of these protesters at the sense that, you know, and, and a lot of the anti-vaxxers, that seems to be, uh, that and the vaccine passport seems to be the the, the uh, sticking point here for a lot of these. Uh, you said that a lot of this is just social media, people getting together, uh, this sort of thing. Um you know, we look to the opposite extreme as to what happened uh, in the United States uh, in the, at the Capitol building and yeah. such. Um, you mentioned also earlier about, you know, you start this sort of you start down this this road. Sooner or later, you're going to get somebody who's perhaps just a little off center and takes it a bit yeah. too far. Is there what can we do? Are there intelligence uh, services that are watching these people that are being aware that are monitoring who they are? Is this something the RCMP is watching closely? I'm guessing that with both within the RCMP and within CSIS where I used to work, I'm guessing that there's been a, a sort of full court press. I don't know for a fact. I don't, I don't have access to intelligence anymore, as I noticed. But I think that this is serious enough in terms of a, it is an extremist threat to Canada. There's the potential of violence. That's why you have CSIS as an early warning system. The bottom line, though, is that, you know, even if it's disorganized, all it takes is a couple of charismatic personalities. Now, let me give you an example, Scott, really yeah. quickly. When I worked in this extremism at CSIS, there was always one or two voices that, you know, they, they had the charisma, they had the ideology, and they were able to spread it. Think of what Donald Trump did on January the 6th. Yeah. He sent the message out. The election's been stolen. People who were fans of the president went to the Capitol and they rioted. It only takes one or two really, really bright people in the sense that they know what buttons to push, they know how to push them and where to push them, and people will follow them. That's my fear is that these charismatic personalities might be out there. I think it's still rather disorganized. I can't say for sure, but it just takes one person who's got, you know, two neurons more than, not, than I do, and he gets the message out and people, people follow him. Do you, and I guess my point in all of this, are intelligence officials monitoring this? Are they aware, yeah, that's Joe. He's the guy from over here. He's the guy that was out west. Now he's out east, that sort of thing. I would be very surprised if they're not monitoring at this point because this is a threat to national security. It, I mean, whether it's terrorism or not, it's, a, it's an interesting philosophical debate. But, you know, if the CISA looks at terrorism, right? The RCP looks at, at violent criminality. You know, if you're going to start targeting people and for, you know, serious bodily harm or worst case scenario of death, that's a crime. I'm guessing the RCMP is well versed in that. So I would, I would bet dollars to donuts that, in fact, uh, that's exactly what those services are doing. They, they devoted a certain amount of their resources to do it. The problem, Scott, is that both agencies are running flat out on a gazillion other things. Now you put this on their bottom, where do they find the resources to do it? Where do they find the time and money to do it? So I think they're probably doing it, but it's, it's a real challenge at the best of times. And then you start talking about, you know, freedom, right? A charter right, the freedom of expression. Does this, does this violate that? It's, uh, it's a can of worms, Scott. And um, I, in some ways, I'm glad I'm retired. Some, in some ways, I miss, miss a lot working there. But I'm guessing that they're doing the best they can under the circumstances. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, director of the University of Ottawa Security Program and former analyst with CSIS, talking about protesters on the campaign trail. Phil, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, guys. Take care. Bye. Here's today's daily commentary. Here is what Dr. Catherine Smart, president, Canadian Medical Association, said in a Tuesday press release. Quote, in the absence of a consistent federal approach to vaccine certification, a patchwork has emerged across the country, leading to confusion and inequalities, end quote. 
Why are we constantly talking provincial vaccine passports when the Canadian Medical Association says it is not the way to go and will lead to an inefficient patchwork approach? There should be one federal vaccine passport, not a series of different documents across provinces, and the Fed will need one anyway for travel passports. So why is JT giving the provinces money to start up all these individual programs when a simple, single federal program is all that is needed? The answer is simple. JT called an election and he wants to win a majority. And in the last provincial election, the Liberals lost in Nova Scotia, meaning there is only one province in Canada, Newfoundland, that is still Liberal. The rest of the provinces are either Conservative or NDP provincial governments. So why on earth would Justin Trudeau do anything to help the opposition provincial governments when he is trying desperately to win a majority for himself. We need a federal vaccine passport, not provincial. Wake up, Canada. The nation's doctors are finally calling for it. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, with Dr. Catherine Smart, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, on this show yesterday. You know, one of the challenges of the healthcare system that we have, which is funded largely by the federal government, but administered at the provincial level, and that really leaves us vulnerable in these situations to these patchwork approaches and lack of consistency across provinces, because I totally agree with you. Having one Canadian vaccine certificate slash passport, whatever you prefer to call it, that all Canadians could use would be much more efficient and it would just get us over that hurdle much quicker. I think, like you said at the beginning, it's frustrating to Canadians to see these inconsistencies. And I think this has plagued our pandemic response right from the beginning. But of course now uh, everybody's barking about a provincial system because the feds have yet to introduce a, uh, a, they've introduced provincial systems because they, they have failed to introduce federal systems. BC has already announced that their certificate is only temporary until uh, the federal system comes into play. Why is the government putting money towards two systems that are redundant? You know I've been asking this question over and over and over again. And as was the Premier, how come you have decided to switch gears when you said that there was uh, there would not be a vaccine passport? And now, of course, now there is. Here's what the uh, Premier had to say at his news conference earlier on. Three months, along with Canada's other Premiers, I've called on the federal government to develop a national vaccine passport. We've seen this national leadership in countries around the world who have implemented their own national vaccine certificate programs. Because it's clear that a national system is far better than a patchwork of certificates across every single province and territory in in the country, especially as more Canadians travel abroad. But Justin Trudeau has told us that they will not be rolling out a national vaccine passport while their election is ongoing. We can't wait any longer. We must take immediate action, and we will. Because we need to protect our hospitals, We need to avoid lockdowns at all costs. We want our kids in school and our businesses to stay open. All right, that was uh, Premier Doug Ford earlier on today at his news conference unveiling that he would, in fact, uh, be releasing vaccine certificates, uh, they're being called. And, of course, again, echoing what the Canadian Medical Association said on this show yesterday, that this should be a federal program, not a patchwork provincial system, which is odd because we're all sitting here whining about how it's a regional patchwork system, yet we're not looking beyond that. It's kind of bizarre. Uh, so again, just reiterating what, uh, the premier said earlier on today, as of, uh, September 22nd, uh, this will take place, uh, second phase, October 22nd, which will include a, uh, QR code on your phone. Uh, this will, uh, involve non-essential services. It will not include things like shopping malls and essential services, uh, salons, church, that kind of thing. However, uh, there is a long list of, uh, of, uh, uh places that, uh, I guess now it will be, uh, needed. So that includes restaurants, bars, uh, excluding outdoor patios as well as delivery and takeout, nightclubs, 
uh, including outdoor areas of the establishment, meeting and event spaces, banquet halls, convention centers, facility used to be sports for sports and fitness, uh, gyms, that sort of thing, sporting events, casinos, bingo halls, gaming establishments, concerts, music events, theaters, cinemas, strip clubs, bathhouses, sex clubs. Uh, racing venues, horse racing, uh, for example, uh, they will all require a vaccine passport in order to uh, to get in. And uh, that's where we are. Without further ado, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman of Suma Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. He is with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott, and you? I'm doing pretty good considering where we are. You know, what the heck? We're heading into a long weekend, Tim. And I'm going to Newfoundland this weekend to watch rugby. Scott, I couldn't be happier. How can you play rugby or even watch rugby with all that spittle flying around? Oh, I, I, you know, I just wear lots of PPE. It's all good. Come on. And Alan Doyle sings lullabies as we get our way through it. All right. Uh, you have a great time. Uh, good for you. Uh, I, your thoughts on the reversal of uh, Doug Ford and the province of Ontario and now uh, issuing vaccine passports. And again, we had the uh, Canadian Medical Association on just yesterday and saying that uh, provincial passports uh, lead to confusion and inequalities, and they recommend a federal passport as well. Why are we where we are? Why is the Why is Doug Ford backtracking here? Well, because he's seeing the data uh, and that's out there uh, on all manner of uh, vaccine-related matters, and a lot of that data shows that Canadians support vaccinations on mass, and they uh, the, the reason they often support vaccinations on mass because it believes it gives them uh, liberties. Certainly, that's what we have heard frequently, and we're seeing this happen everywhere else. Well, not everywhere, but in a lot of other places, Manitoba, Quebec, it, uh, the passport's in effect, I believe, across the river today in Quebec. So that's why we are where we are. We saw MLSE, the big uh, sports and entertainment player in Ontario, go down this route, uh, hospitals going down this route. So it was a bit inevitable. I did like the cheap shot there. <laughs> That, well, the government can't, federal government can't do it now because they're in the election, so we're just going to have to. So anyway, it's inevitability, Scott, and it's reached a climax now or will on September 22nd. So, uh, again, why why are we talking, uh, again, we've talked continuously about the provinces, the provinces, the provinces, the provinces, the Prime Minister seems to get a free ride on this stuff. Why are we not, why is he giving money for a provincial system, and we all know what the experts say, and even BC has said this is temporary until they get their federal system done, why is he not just coming up with a with a a system now and, and i mean i don't know can you use the election as an as an excuse for that why is well, he pushing this onto the provinces and we all know it's a provincial responsibility but we've had the canadian canadian medical association and and other experts i had a, a an epidemiologist on uh this more uh, earlier on today dr uh colin Furness, well known yeah, he yeah, says yeah. the same thing so why are we not addressing the prime minister in a federal system instead of uh pushing the provinces to do this well you kind of said it there earlier shall we get into the british north america act scott of 1868 and discuss constitutional responsibility yeah but wait a sec he already says there's going to be a federal system so that you know there's going the federal system is coming they have already said that so uh, we know right, it's provincial but, territory but, have, but they're going to do it anyway but you have that again quebec i don't hear them clamoring for all of this so you mean it's it's I, on the overall point of of a bungled system, it is. I agree with you. It's confusing and it's a mess. But Trudeau, O'Toole, Singh—they aren't going to weigh into this right now because all of them are counting on Quebec being an important place for them. And if they come out and say all of a sudden that Canada will administer the system for all of its provinces, watch out for. The, uh, for for the blowback from the most powerful political figure in the country, Premier Legault. So that's why it's not happening right now. Whether it happens in the future or the federal document, which is uh, supposed to be used for all manner of travel, uh, is adopted across the board, uh, that, that won't happen until after September 20th because of where Quebec may go with this, and the power of Francois Legault, the premier, and his potential impact on this election. Is, uh, is it in the prime minister's best interest to cater to the provinces 
at this point, considering there's only one province in the country right now that is even has a provincial liber- liberal government. So why would he make uh, life easier for Doug Ford? Why would he make easy- life easier for Premier Horgan in, in British Columbia or, or Legault or any of them? Well, in, well, it's it's not about pleasing Newfoundland and Labrador, though everyone's mission in life should be pleasing Newfoundland <laughs> and Labrador, the only, government, the only liberal government in the country, to your point. Um, it, look, it, it, again, it goes a lot back to Quebec. You just don't want this fight right now. And you just saw yesterday or two days ago, Legault saying, look, I want my federal transfers. Let me decide what I'm going to do. Um, you know, Trudeau, the other leaders are happy to let that play out right now. So they'll deal with the confusion. They'll know the federal document is coming, um, and they'll the, 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 let the provinces sort it out and let them wear the immediate political heat. The little bit of bingo, let right. them wear it. I think that is yeah. the key right now because yeah, you know yeah. that what kind you know what kind of show this is going to turn into once it starts. And does the prime minister want that on his plate, or does he want it on Doug Ford's plate, or Horgan's plate, or Legault's plate? Done what on his place? Uh, he'd rather that the the premiers are taking heat. Um, he uh, he will uh, he he will keep it off his plate and let the others deal with that particular appetizing problem. On that note, though, um, you know, so we don't want this fight now, says the federal candidates who are in an election that no one wanted. Is this more proof we should not be in an election right now because the election is slowing down a federal passport? Like, this is screwing everything up. I feel like that's a leading question. I feel like you're giving me a softball there to whack uh, into Burlington or something. But, yeah, there are people that could have that view. Uh, I mean, you know, we've got Delta. We've got passports. We've got school coming back. We've got where, you know, to Ford's point, to the point of others that are bringing in this passport, part of what it is supposed to do is make sure that we don't have to have further lockdowns. Uh, yeah. Because we know how damaging that is to the economy. And if, as is the case, you know, the Prime Minister, Mr. O'Toole, everybody else are talking about economic growth, well, that starts in an immediate term basis by keeping the economy open. So, yeah, maybe the focus should be where you suggested it, Scott. Uh, let's move on to protesters and such. Uh, we've certainly seen uh, how ugly it has gotten on the campaign trail. All political leaders have. Um, obviously condemn this sort of uh, behavior. Uh, it seems that uh, the prime minister is jumping on this and, and you know, you better elect me or you're going to end up with these guys kind of painting them as the opposition. The Toronto Star has a article today, uh, I guess, investigating uh, these protesters and, and find out that the exact same people who have been stalking uh, conservative uh, provincial Conservative Education Minister Stephen Lecce, and in fact the Premier. So, um, you know, it obviously says that uh, everybody's fair game, not just the Prime Minister here. Can he continue to use this in his advantage? Well, whether he can or he can't, I think he's going to. Uh, I, I think the Prime Minister thinks he's, you know, got this backdrop of protesters that the, the nation is seeing. They're not seeing the the protesters that are at Stephen Lecce's home are crawling up his driveway and then equally making life difficult for him. So he's going to try, and it's pretty um, pretty opportunistic uh, to to say that these people are all linked to the Conservatives and, you know, Aaron O'Toole needs to stand up and say something. Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh, after that event that was cancelled in Bolton by the protesters, um, did come out and, and condemn it. I saw Michael Barrett, who's a conservative MP, condemn again yesterday. So Trudeau's going to play this drum uh, as best he can and see if people believe it. Again, in search of the giant wedge issue. Yeah, yeah and, you know, generally, the conservatives, the, the, the only minor mistake, and you and know, I talked about this, the conservatives made initially was, you know, it took them about, 12 to 14 hours to come back with what their vaccine, uh, vaccine, national vaccination policy was. Trudeau thought he had a bit of a winner there. They still think they have a winner there. Um, so they're going to keep at this. Whether that is true, I mean, they're working off an old, you know, stories of, of Mike Harris's campaigns and others that Canadians respond to will respond to a leader who's subject to such unreasonable siege by protesters, P. 
people in the Harris campaign was it 95 or 99 can't remember which one said yeah you know, they believed his Harris's numbers went up and he got reelected or elected because people saw these unruly protesters who didn't make things look fair I think Trudeau's hoping that the same will be the the case for him and by focusing um, people's attention on Arrow and O'Toole and that they're not in solidarity, as he will argue, about uh, stymieing this movement, um, that uh, that it will also hurt O'Toole further. So uh, part of that, again, probably predictable. The unfortunate part about this is none of these federal leaders, be they Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, Jagmeet Singh, uh, Mr. Blanc, well, he's a federal leader, you know, uh, Maxime Bernier, Anime Paul, they shouldn't be inflaming this at all, right? There's yeah. the politics of the day, but there are lasting consequences of giving life to people's dissatisfaction. Um, that is not helpful and not responsible. Is it dissatisfaction or is it organized protest? I mean, it's you know, a bit of everything, though. It starts yeah. with dissatisfaction, and yes, yeah. there's organized protest. The Toronto Star is highlight it well, I think, as is the Toronto Sun, uh, some of the organizational aspects of this, but they're able to organize because there's a body of people that are malleable to this out there, right? Um, so, and then we all know all of the data that's out there on how people have been impacted by COVID and rising addiction rates and, and, and so forth. So, you know, you do have to be responsible at a certain point in time. If you keep putting gasoline on the fire, you're going to have a bigger fire. Yeah. Uh, poll numbers, uh, obviously, we've seen uh, the Liberal lead diminish. We've seen the other two parties slowly, slowly, slowly uh, move forward. Last couple of days, it was neck and neck. Now we're seeing uh, some polling saying that there's actually a couple of ticks ahead for the Conservatives. However, this is still uh, within the margin of error. Your thought on the poll numbers? Uh, is there anything we can can learn from this? I think you got to look at trends, right, and bring them all together, aggregate all the polls together to get a sense of where things are. Obviously, I have an interest. I own uh, a part of Abacus Data. Um, I, I think there's some commonalities across them. There's one poll, polling firm that has a bigger lead, but most of the rest of us have it in the same sort of range, up or down by one or two points. So what that tells me is uh, that the race is, still continues to be close, uh, and I'd watch all of those polls for that trend over the next number of days. There's some big things happening as you know, in the next week, starting tonight. Big debate in Quebec, a major French broadcaster, TV, TVA, leading into two debates next, national debates next week. The Liberals have dropped their platform today. Does that have an impact? And apparently life returns to normal when it's 12.01 next Tuesday morning when Labor Day ends. So, We'll see how and more people are supposed to tune in, how all these things impact polls uh, over the next week. Are you expecting a big change come Labor Day that all of a sudden, wow, we got like a there was one campaign before the long weekend. There's another campaign after the long weekend, another set of polls after the long weekend that are going to show things completely different. I think if there's going to be cha- real change in numbers, uh, that it'll actually be around this time next week, maybe through next weekend. I mean, again, I don't think anybody's running off to the last weekend of summer, then going to wa- wake up wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and <laughs> ready mm. to jump into the election. I think it'll be gradual, but I think the liberals will say that they've geared their strategy now, why their platform was launched today, to, to you know, to build into that last uh, two and a half weeks of this campaign. All right, Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, talking about everything election and uh, COVID and everything in between. Tim, thank you so much for the time. Be well, and if we don't chat between now and then, enjoy the rock this weekend. I will. And I'll tell Alan Doyle you send your love, Scott. How about yes, that? Yes, absolutely. And, and again, I'm waiting for the time when all of a sudden he interrupts one of our phone calls because he knocks on your door <laughs> looking for eggs or some milk. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> Take care, Tim. We either do this or we risk shutting down the economy, which would even be worse, having our hospital capacity maxed out and, and at the brink, having our kids stay at home, our colleges and university kids going back online, that's what we're trying to avoid and i'm taking the advice of the chief medical officer as i always have and we're moving forward when we found out that the federal government could not implement this like every other country and every other leader 
in the world is doing this. All right, that is Premier Doug Ford earlier today at his news conference announcing his reversal that, uh, in fact, Ontario would be implementing vaccine passports. Uh, oddly enough, we had uh, Dr. Um, Catherine Smart on, president of the uh, Canadian Medical Association, just yesterday, and she was saying that uh, provincial passports uh, create confusion and inequalities uh, because it is a patchwork system, much like the same patchwork system uh, the regions are complaining about that we have in the province, but they're not looking to the bigger picture. Uh, Dr. Uh, Colin Furness, we had on earlier, epidemiologist, echoed the same thing. This should be done on the federal level, uh, not the provincial level. But for some reason, it has not been an issue. And the responsibility has been pushed on to uh, the provinces for all of this. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Um, thanks. Uh, your thoughts on what has happened with the announcement of this uh, provincial uh, passport system. Are you surprised that the federal government uh, isn't taking over here? I mean, are you surprised that they're letting the uh, debate and, and the, uh, the conversation go to the provinces instead of doing a, uh, a singular system, which most uh, medical officials agree on? Yeah, I mean... Ultimately, you would have expected that this was something, particularly since you know proof of vaccination is important in international travel documents. That we would have seen the federal government uh, move forward on this rather than you know promising a billion dollars to provinces to you know bring in their own systems. So, you know, again, it's 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 surprising. Of course, it's also not surprising because since the start of the pandemic, the federal government. Uh, in everything except going to get supply of vaccines has really let the provinces do their own things, and they've played a pretty kind of limited coordinating role uh, across the top of it. Uh, but, yeah, whether it was, you know, uh, standards in long-term care, uh, you know, masking, uh, you know, reopening plans uh, across a whole range of, of domains, the federal government has uh, decided not to, you know, take the powers that it would have had uh, in a kind of health emergency to, uh, impose uh, over overarching public health uh, rules, and instead left it to the provinces. And this is the latest example of that. We have heard that you know the the prime minister didn't want to do this during a federal election. Is that not setting himself up for the question? Well, then why did we call a federal election in the middle of a global pandemic? Yes, or why wasn't this ready uh, before he called the election? Yeah, I mean yeah. certainly those are those are uh, criticisms. I mean, I think that's very much what we got from uh, Doug Ford today. Uh, part of it was the kind of Buckley's cough syrup argument that, you know, uh, you know he didn't want to do it because it tastes terrible, but it works. <laughs> um, uh, but the other part of it was really to say, uh, you know, this wasn't his job to do. He's doing it now. He doesn't want to do it. But, uh, you know, it was that the prime minister had failed to take action. In some ways, I mean, I think uh, the, you know Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau have agreed uh, to keep out of each other's uh, way during this campaign. I don't think uh, Mr. Ford was very happy last week when Trudeau partially crossed the line to say he hoped Ontario would bring in a vaccine passport. Yeah. And I think part of you know repaying that, you know, uh, if you get a potato, you give one back, and it's uh, to say, well, yeah, I'm bringing in the system, but that's because the prime minister failed to do what was really his job. It seems the Prime Minister, though, has managed this narrative well because it seems that everybody's jumping on the provinces instead of the Prime Minister. But that's been the case in a lot of this pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, let's face it, the provinces, uh, had we had a federal vaccine passport, I'm sure a few of them would have complained to say that they were already designing their own. Uh, you know, and we're back to the uh, the sort of tracker app episode where a bunch of provinces said, no, we, you know, you can't use the federal yeah. tracker app. So, you know, we, there's reasons other than, like, laziness or failure to do the job why a prime minister decides not to go with a pan-Canadian framework, right? There's costs involved in that, but uh, ultimately, you know, there's also seems to be a real logic to the extent that if you produced a really good vaccine passport, it could, you know, do double duty as that international travel document, which we will be getting from the federal government uh, in one way or the other, uh, because other countries are demanding it. And that's the odd thing, is that it's not that there won't be a federal uh, passport, it's on the way. Uh, yeah, eventually. <laughs> I mean, yeah, eventually, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and, and you know, we're dealing with different timelines here. Maybe eventually that will become what we all use, but, you know, in the short term, people are looking for something not for, you know, a document for traveling internationally, like saying you don't have smallpox or polio. 
Um, but for something that really might be an effective public health intervention faced with a very current, uh, you know, rise of cases, potential fourth wave, and, you know, dealing with the, the Delta variant. So, you know, in that context, yeah, we, we probably would have appreciated uh, more timely action, and we're demanding of our governments fairly timely action on this. Uh, we know that there's only one provincial government that's liberal in uh, Canada. That's Newfoundland. Also, I believe the Yukon. Uh, is that does that have anything to do with it? There's, you know, why would the prime minister do anything to help the premiers of BC or Ontario or Quebec when they're not liberal? Yeah, I, I, I suspect it has less to do with the color of the parties. Although, you know, maybe if you had some liberal premiers, they would have been a bit more willing to to play ball with with Mr. Trudeau, but. I think it has, has more to do with not wanting to uh, get into jurisdictional fights about these passports, on the one hand, and the second hand, uh, not wanting to pay the price of the unhappiness that may be attached to these. And so, you, you know, allows the people who are upset with these vaccine passports to take out their unhappiness on provincial premiers rather than on the federal government. Um, you know, the fact that most of those premiers are conservative probably doesn't uh, make Mr. Trudeau sad, but probably isn't really his motivation either. Uh, let's talk about protesters. There's been lots of chatter about what has been happening on the campaign uh, campaign trail, especially with the Liberal campaign. Uh, obviously, one situation had to be cancelled because of security concerns. Uh, the Prime Minister now has pivoted on that and, and basically, you know, uh, elect me or you're going to end up with these guys, uh, kind of uh, painting uh, the protesters as his opposition. Yet there's an article from the Toronto Star today that said that, uh, in fact, they've done some uh, research into these groups and it's the exact same people that were protesting against Doug Ford that they uh, tried to hassle uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce. Can you use this as a wedge issue when it appears to be crossing political stripes? Well, I think it's harder, although the Liberals are still trying to do this, it's harder to use it as a wedge issue to say, look, it's the other, it's the other people who are sending these people out against me. Yeah. Uh, I think you can still use it, uh, and I mean, we, we saw this with, uh, you know, Dominic Cardi uh, in the New Brunswick government, minister of the New Brunswick government doing the same thing of, you know, standing up to the protesters and saying, we, you know, this is a small minority, uh, you know, we aren't going to let them bully us with these kinds of tactics, and, uh, you know, presumably that receives a fair bit of, of uh, support in, in response. So, you know, if we see provinces adopting uh, vaccine passports, uh, because there's a, a strong public push for them, probably, you know, three-quarters of the population pushing for them. Um, you know, when the people do protest against it, obviously uh, there's a wonderful opportunity for, for governments to look tough, uh, you know, but really they're playing to the majority opinion when, when they're doing that. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm sure Mr. Trudeau won't be the last to try and, and use this. I mean, in a kind of softer form, we saw that uh, in uh, Mr. Ford's press conference today when someone asked... Uh, you know, what about people who have to, you know, uh, actually enforce these things at, yeah. at a, you know, at bars and restaurants? Do they have to end up being bouncers if people, you know, get really irate about it? Uh, you know, and he said, well, people should come and, and do that protest at Queen's Park. So, again, he's not kind of setting himself up in the same way as Mr. Trudeau does, but, you know, again, is trying to be, a, you know, a voice of reason and, uh, you know, look responsible to the electorate. And again, uh, asking those who don't like it to come and, and protest in front of his house or, you know, Queen's Park, if you like, uh, as opposed to taking it out on ordinary Ontarians. So, I, you know, I think our politicians will in various ways continue to milk uh, majority public opinion on this. We have certainly seen all leaders denounce this activity, and, and, and I don't think this is what anyone wants to see from, from any political party. It's, it's, it's not acceptable. Um, but is this all about violent protesters or uh, protesters on the extreme, or does this just confirm that there's people out there that aren't happy with the Prime Minister this time out? Well, I mean, I think there's always people who aren't happy with the Prime Minister this time out, and uh, I think it's natural that you see protesters uh, show up uh, at public events. Uh, I mean, we saw it, for instance, in the last federal election when uh, Mr. Trudeau's attempt to stroll through the Hamilton Labor Day Parade got upset by, uh, you know, certain unions who were unhappy that he had legislated the postal workers back. If you're going to be a politician in a public space, you should expect that the public will sometimes speak back to you. Uh, in ways uh, you don't like. Um, so, I mean, I think this, you know, this is uh, what you would expect. 
uh, you know, when groups are really upset with what a government is doing, uh, they work harder to organize. And so we, we've seen a capacity to organize with these groups in terms of figuring out the prime minister's uh, itinerary and showing up to, to protest his events. I mean, political leaders who don't want that to happen, I think, do what uh, Mr. Harper did in the 2015 campaign, which was essentially have a series of events in rooms that were solely filled with Conservative Party members. Uh, you know, that I think works reasonably well if, if you want to avoid that. But I, I suspect the Liberal strategy is, in fact, to, uh, you know, promote a certain number of these confrontations so that, you know, Mr. Trudeau can look strong. Maybe he's trying to, you know, harken back to his dad, who in 1968 campaign was pelted with bottles at the St. John Baptiste yeah. Parade. And, you know, him standing up made him look like, uh, you know, a, a strong leader. So he, he may be trying to replay that. Uh, lots of action in the polls we've seen in the last uh, couple of weeks since this, or last couple of days, certainly since this started. Uh, the Liberals lead decreasing. We're now got a, a pretty much a, a dead heat. Uh, your thoughts on where we are with the polls? Does this mean people are interested that we will not see a low turnout? Uh, I don't know if it means that people are interested. I think it, it means that there's uh, you know a fair bit of fluidity in, in where people might go. Uh, I think in the early stage of the campaign, Mr. Trudeau, in a way, uh, declared non-confidence in his own government <laughs> in calling the election. And, uh, you know, uh, Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh showed that they had lots of confidence uh, in replacing him. Uh, I think that explains why the, the first phase of the campaign has seen the Liberals come down and uh, those two opposition parties uh, go up a bit. Um, so, yeah, I think that we, it's an important next phase when we get on the other side of uh, uh, Labor Day, uh, people are a bit more out of the summer mode. Uh, the uh, debates are going to happen. I think that will be the kind of the next phase where, you know, about the 40% of the population that's still pretty fluid, uh, you know, may change their mind. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard to know what the turnout's going to be. Uh, maybe a closer race will encourage more partisans to show up. Um, it's certainly not the cakewalk to a majority that uh, Mr. Trudeau thought it would be at the beginning, and, and that maybe does give more incentive to the Canadians from all parties to go and register their vote. Peter Grape with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about vaccine passports and election protesters and all in between. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. I just want to tell one last story. No, that's it. No more.